All right, so let's open in prayer. Dear Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time to be together, to celebrate, to see and experience your goodness, Lord. Uh, We pray that you would uh, make your word clear to us and that you would give us wisdom and that you would bless the sermon and the rest of our worship of you. And we thank you for your grace and amen. Uh, So today we are continuing our series uh, called the GCF Vision. The vision or the GCF vision is a term that we use a lot, uh, but we haven't really done a thorough teaching on it not since Greg was teaching an RCF at least. So in this series, I try to explain concisely yet thoroughly what exactly the GCF vision is. So our vision is that there are certain aspects of Christianity that God wants Christians to rediscover and restore. And we have basically five of them. Uh, Number one, having a biblically complete understanding of, experience of, and presentation of the gospel. Number two, being grace-based instead of performance-based. Number three, being reformed and charismatic, which is the one we're currently looking at. Number four, understanding the role, relevance, and responsibilities of the church. And number five, having a victorious eschatology. And again, I'm not saying that there's no churches that have these things. There's plenty of churches that do well in one or two of these areas, and then there's other churches that do well in a different one or two, but very few churches at the moment have all five of these things. Uh, But we believe that that is something that God is going to restore to his church. So today, we're also, we're continuing a subsection of this series called The Strengths of Reformed Churches. Uh, We're on the third point of the main five points of this series, being reformed and charismatic. So we start off by looking at the strengths of reformed churches, then we're going to look at the strengths of charismatic churches, and then we're going to look at the strengths and synergy that come from being both, from having both, from having the benefits of both church cultures. Um, So church cultures are kind of hard to define in a single sentence, so I prefer to describe them with a list of characteristics. So there's four, uh, there's about four qualities that I think of when I think of what what I consider a reformed church. Having an emphasis on the five solas, having a biblical view of predestination and election, holding to covenant theology rather than dispensationalism, and placing a high priority on regularly and thoroughly studying God's word. Uh, So today we are going to continue looking at holding to covenant theology rather than dispensationalism. Uh, Last week we gave an overview of covenant theology, and today we're going to look at uh, some difficulties with dispensationalism. So I would consider holding to covenant theology rather than dispensationalism to be a strength of the Reformed Church, Uh, but the main reason I would consider it a strength is because really I have two major issues with dispensationalism. Uh, The first one, that it has, I would say, an unwarranted and unbiblical defeatist outlook on the church's future, and secondly, it teaches that there are two separate peoples of God. Uh, So my my goal today is to explain why those two ideas are biblically problematic. But first, I'll try to give an overview of dispensationalism. 
So uh, as we looked at last week, dispensationalism and covenant theology are both theological frameworks for trying to understand redemptive history as a whole, like what God has been doing and will continue to do since the creation of the earth and how each piece, how each section fits into his overall purposes. So they're, they're both ways of trying to understand that. Uh, dispensationalism splits redemptive history into various sections called dispensations. Uh, dispensation was formalized by John Nelson Darby, and one of the major underlying paradigms is the idea that the Bible should always be interpreted literally wherever possible unless there's ex- explicit reason to do otherwise. But if you kind of think about that uh, paradigm, that assumption a bit deeper, you start to see that dispensationalism comes to the scripture with the assumption that God would not use figurative language without explicitly warning us that he is doing so. And frankly, I think that's somewhat of a dangerous assumption to bring to the scriptures. But unfortunately, we don't have time to go too deep into hermeneutics today. We can do that some other time. Uh, So Darby interpreted um, 2 Timothy 2.15 in the KJV, which mentions rightly dividing the word of truth, to mean that Christians are to split scripture into different time periods, which he called dispensations. So generally in dispensationalism, uh, there's thought to be five key aspects of a dispensation. The, number one, a distinct idea of God's revelation, or distinctive idea of God's revelation. Number two, a specific test of man's obedience in relation to that divine revelation. Number three, man's failure under that test. Number four, the judgment of God for man's failure. And number five, the beginning of a new dispensation. So I, I, wanna, I want you to notice uh, that third point that each dispensation ends with failure on man's part. Generally, that's true. We fail a lot, but that's not an assumption we should bring to the scriptures. And uh, understanding that that is kind of at the core thinking of dispensationalism will help us to understand why dispensationalism interprets certain passages the way that it does. So I'm not going to go into too much detail into each dispensation um, because... Not everyone agrees on all the details of each dispensation, and there's actually two views of how many dispensations there are, but I will cover both of the views at least briefly. And I even made a table in the PowerPoint. Um, So there's a a view that there's seven dispensations, and there's a view that there's three dispensations. Uh, The seven dispensation view... um, includes the time of innocence, which is from creation to the fall, um, the time of conscience, which is from the fall to the flood, and it's called conscience because uh, the test is that um, supposedly that people, the main test is that people are supposed to just follow God and do what they know is best to the best of their ability, which obviously did not happen. Uh, the third dispensation, human government, which is generally thought to be from the flood to the Tower of Babel. The fourth dispensation, the dispensation of promise, um, from God's calling Abraham until Israel is delivered from Egypt. Uh, The fifth one, the dispensation of law, 
which is from the giving of the law until Christ comes. And I do want to point out that dispensationalism generally believes that um, the judgment for that dispensation, for Israel's failure to obey the law and to recognize Christ, is that God decided to form the church. So the church is a parenthetical people of God. Um, The sixth dispensation, the dispensation of grace, from Christ's advent, or his first coming, or crucifixion, there's um, different thoughts about where it would start, until his second coming. And then the seventh dispensation being the millennial kingdom. And then the three dispensations view is very, very much similar, just condensed, uh, as you can see on the chart. Um, They generally just have the dispensation of Mosaic law, grace, and millennial kingdom. So I want to talk somewhat about the main beliefs of dispensationalism. Uh, There's three kind of main outworkings of dispensationalism I want to point out. Uh, Number one, the idea that there are two peoples of God, that Israel is separate from the church, there are different groups, and God has different plans for each one. And the main reason dispensationalism believes this is because it believes that there are prophecies about Israel that necessitate the idea of Israel being separate from the church. Uh, So let's look at one real quick. Let's look at Isaiah 2, verses 2 through 4. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and shall be lifted up above the hills, and the nations shall flow to it. And many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations, and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. So dispensationalism would say that this passage must be talking about the literal nation of Israel, uh, and it would claim that, you know, since this prophecy obviously hasn't been fulfilled yet, there's still wars. Um... That that necessitates, therefore, that there will be a literal nation of Israel that God is going to work through, distinct from what he's doing in the church. Uh, Covenant theology would look at this passage in light of the fact that the church, the bride of Christ, is the new Jerusalem, and therefore would see this passage as talking about the church. So that's just an overview of that distinction. We're not going to get too deep into that at the moment, but we might later today. Uh, Another key belief of dispensationalism is the idea that there will be a future restoration of Israel as a nation. And dispensationalism interprets uh, verses in Romans 11 as saying this, and we'll take a look at that passage later on in the sermon. And then the third, um, one of the main beliefs of dispensationalism that I want us to look at is that there will be a falling away of the church and the revealing of a powerful antichrist figure followed by a rapture and a great tribulation and an establishing of a literal millennial kingdom on earth. Uh, Dispensationalists generally believe that the the world is going to get worse and worse until the church falls away. 
Uh, dispensationalism sees this as something that's taught in Matthew 24, uh, 2 Thessalonians 2, and the book of Revelation. Uh, we don't have time to look at all those today, uh, but later on in the series we will, uh, hopefully, thoroughly, when we look at the fifth part of this series, having a victorious eschatology. And if you would like to learn more about the history of dispensationalism, uh, Catherine gave an excellent church history lecture about John Darby and the Plymouth Brethren and how dispensationalism got started. I've included a link to it in your handout. I usually don't, um, in sermons, spend a lot of time talking about theological points I don't agree with. So before we get into this, I, I wanted to give a word on unity and the importance of unity in the church. Even though I don't agree with dispensationalism, I want to make it very clear that dispensationalists are still within Christian orthodoxy. Dispensationalists still believe in salvation by faith, so they're within orthodoxy. Uh, this is not something to split over or to not love each other over or to disrespect each other over. They still believe in the Trinity, and they still believe in the deity of Christ. There are plenty of uh, God-loving, God-worshipping, great Christians who hold to dispensational theology. I want to look at two verses uh, that you know, have something to say about church unity and the importance of it, and this is not something we should split over. Let's look at John 13, verse 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. You know, there's probably always going to be theological disagreements in the church, but we can disagree lovingly. And if we're going to disagree, we have to do so lovingly, because Christ commands that we love each other. It's of very high importance to him. Let's also look at John 17, verses 20 and 21. Jesus in the high priestly prayer. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Christ wants his people to be unified, not divided. We, you can have disagreements in a family, and you often will, but you can't let minor disagreements cause splits within a family. And uh, this is not something we should split over. I believe that dispensationalism has some problematic logical outworkings, but it's nothing I would ever want brothers in Christ to have division over. We can disagree lovingly, and we can worship and fellowship together in unity. So it's, I wanted to say that first. That's very important. That is, in a real sense, more important than, you know, the rest of the sermon, the agreeing with uh, the points I'm going to try to make. But anyways, there are two major difficulties with dispensationalism that I want to address today. Uh, the first one is the having a defeatist outlook. So one of the problems with dispensationalism is that it has an unbiblical, defeatist outlook on life. It takes up the assumption that throughout redemptive history, God's design is for his people to fail, because his design is for all people to fail. There is no reason for this assumption, 
And I would say this is a harmful assumption. The main reason I think it's unbiblical is because, again, there's no biblical reason to assume it. Given that we are the people of God, who God wants to show his power through and his love through and his victory through, we should not assume by default that God's plans for his people are that they would fail. I'm just going to look, I want us to look uh, quickly at two passages that just kind of don't really work well with the idea that God's will is for his people to fail. Let's look at Matthew 16, verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Let's also look at Romans 16, verse 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So we would look today more in detail into dispensationalism's beliefs about the future and why I believe there's reasons that they're not biblical, you know, examining specific passages. But that's going to come up in great detail later in this series. So today we're just going to give a brief overview of it. But in general, um, because dispensationalists starts with defeatist assumptions, the idea that in every dispensation it's God's design for man to fail and therefore for God's people to fail, it takes passages that are not talking about the church's future ending in defeat and interprets them as if they are saying that the church's end is defeat. So let's look at Matthew 24, verses 1 through 34. Jesus left the temple and was going away. When his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple, but he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will be... There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat at the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us when these things will be, and what will the sign be of your coming in the end of the age? Notice that uh, the disciples say, Tell us when these things will be, after Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, not one stone will be left upon another in the buildings of the temple. So when will these things be, and what will uh, the sign of your coming in the end of the age be? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold." But the one who endures to the end will be saved, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as the testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So when you see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, 
Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas for women who are pregnant, for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation. Such has not been from the beginning of the world until now, nor will ever will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say to you, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man. Where, wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of heaven will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. All the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. He will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one, hand, one end of heaven to the other. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as the branches become tender and put out its leaves, you know that the summer is near. So also when you see these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So Matthew 24 is not necessarily an easy chapter to interpret. But Jesus does clearly say, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And again, we're going to look at this in much more detail later on in this series, so today we're just going to give an overview of why I believe that the assumption of fail here leads dispensationalism to misinterpret this passage, because they apply it to the future and say that the church will end in fail here. Many will fall away, you know, great tribulation, but Jesus says, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. It is much, much, much more likely that this is talking about something that already happened. I would say, namely, the destruction of Jerusalem and the flight of Christians to Pella, fleeing from Judea to the mountains. Because that is when every stone from the temple was thrown down so that there was not one standing upon another. But I want to... This passage, the term this generation might remind us of another passage. Let's look at Luke 11, verses 45 through 51. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you lawyers also, for you load the people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers. For they killed them, and they built their tombs. 
Therefore, also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles. Some of them they will kill and persecute. So that the blood of the pro- all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary, yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Jesus isn't talking about some judgment at the final judgment where the sins of their fathers are going to be held against them. Jesus is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. That is the judgment against that generation. It was a time of great tribulation such that, you know, people wanted to die and there were mothers who were eating their children for lack of food and starvation. So anyways, I believe that the defeatist outlook, the defeatist assumption of dispensationalism is harmful. Uh, The reason I believe that is because it lowers our expectations of what God will do. You know, there's a lot of harmful things that can come out of having a defeatist eschatology, but the worst one is that it lowers, it, it leads us to have low expectations of what God will do. And our expectations of what God will do make a difference. We don't, we're not going to take the time to look at it now, but I would, you know, think about the account of the 12 spies going out to spy the land of Canaan. They didn't have high expectations of what God would do. They had low expectations of what God would do. And God was still going to do what he set out to do, but because they had low expectations, they weren't a part of it. So having low expectations of what God will do can be dangerous. God wants to do great things through his people, and if we fail to believe that, we will likely miss out on them, to one degree or another at least. And having a defeatist outlook causes a lot of people to miss out on the fact that God wants to do great things through his people today. So, but I'm very excited to later on in this series address uh, those issues in much greater detail. But that has its own section in the series. So the second uh, major issue that I have with dispensationalism is that it has a belief in two peoples of God, distinct from each other, different plans for each one. And I believe that that is unbiblical. Let's look at some passages of Scripture. Let's look at Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 19. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. And I want to point out, by saying at that time you were separated and alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, he's saying that no longer, no longer are these Gentiles, the Ephesians, who are in Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, 
who has made us both one. That is, Jews and Gentiles, he has made us both one. He has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. A citizen isn't a term that describes a member of an assembly. A citizen is a term that describes a member of a nation. Because God has made the two one. There is one people of God, made up of Jews and Gentiles who have received Christ. Let's also look at Matthew 3, verse 9. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Let's also look at Galatians uh, 3, verses 26 through 29. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were, for as many as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I really think it's worth looking at those two passages together. You know, Jesus said um, in Matthew 3, verse 9, Do not presume to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to raise from these stones children from Abraham. And then Paul says in Galatians 3, For you are all one in Christ Jesus, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to promise. Let's also look at Romans 2, verses 28 and 29. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. And then lastly, Uh, Let's look at Romans 11, verses 17 through 21. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share uh, in the nourishing of the root and the olive tree, do not be arrogant towards the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root who supports you. Then you will say, Branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. So again, this passage is talking about Jews and Gentiles. But it's talking about them as grafted into the same tree. 
not two different trees. If there were two different peoples of God, there would be two different trees. The Gentiles would get their own tree or our own tree. There's one tree, one people of God. So I also think that not only is the idea that there are two peoples of God an unbiblical idea, but I think it's a potentially harmful idea. And the main reason I think it's potentially harmful is because it causes us to misunderstand the plans of God. The idea that God has two different peoples will inevitably lead to the idea that he has different plans for each people group. And different dispensationalists work that conclusion out in different ways. But I want to point out three important truths that dispensationalism might lead a person to miss uh, if they're not careful. So three important truths that dispensationalism could lead a person to miss, or that the idea that there's two peoples of God could lead a person to miss. Number one, a Jewish person cannot have a relationship with God apart from Christ. And apart from Christ, their being a Jew does nothing in terms um, to improve their standing before God. Let's look at Acts 4.11 through 12. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders which has become the cornerstone. So this is Peter preaching to Jews. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This is a Jew preaching to Jews under the moving of the Spirit. And there is no other name other than the name of Jesus by which anyone can be saved. Let's also look at uh, Galatians 2, 15, 16, and 21. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose, or Christ died needlessly. So, just as um, all people, no matter who they are, no one can be saved apart from faith in Christ. Faith in Christ is the only way for a person to have a good standing before God, no matter who they are. But if, um, you know, we've seen that if a Jew is in Christ, they're a part of the church, Peter and Paul were Jews, and they believed in Christ, and they were a part of the church. They were apostles for the church. In order for a Jew to be saved, they have to receive Christ, which makes them part of the church, which brings us to our next point. Idea number two, um, that the idea that there's two peoples of God could lead you to miss. God is not going to restore Israel to himself apart from the church. 
So God is going to restore Israel in some sense, but it will be within the church. Let's look at uh, Romans 11. Uh, We're going to look at verses 13 through 15 and then verses 25 through 27. Now I am speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? So you know there, he clearly must be talking about actual Jews. Their rejection um, has led to the reconciliation of the world and their acceptance, implying there will be some sort of future acceptance. And we'll explain that in a bit. But what would that mean but life from the dead? And then he says in 25 through 27, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Come into what? Come into Israel, because there's one people of God. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them that I take away their sins. So personally, I believe that in verse 25, when Paul says Israel, he is talking about the Jews as a people. And in verse 26, when he says all Israel, he means Jews and Gentiles who believe in Christ. And I think there's reason to interpret it that way. The first reason is that it's very clear throughout Scripture that not everyone who's born a Jew will be saved. So therefore, we can say reasonably, Paul is not saying that everyone who is born a Jew will be saved. Let's look again at Romans 2, 28 through 29. For no one uh, is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is from, not from man, but from God. Not only that, but, you know, Judas was a Jew. And Judas was not saved by virtue of being a Jew. The Bible says of Judas that it would be better for him had he had never been born. That's not just talking about difficulties he had on earth. So we know based on interpreting Scripture in the context of other passages of Scripture that Paul is definitely not saying that anyone born a Jew will be saved by virtue of being a Jew. And based on the fact that a Jew can only be saved by accepting Christ and that there is only one people of God, I believe that Paul is saying that before Christ's second coming, there will be a revival where large amounts of Jews come to Christ and join the church, the church being made up of Jews and Gentiles who believe in Christ. But we've clearly seen that a Jew cannot be saved unless they receive Christ. And if they receive Christ, then they are part of the church, just as Peter and Paul were. So God is going to redeem Israel in some sense, but it will not happen apart from the church, nor will it happen apart from receiving Christ. The third important idea that we might miss 
if we believe that there are two peoples of God, is that God does not want the sacrificial system to be restored. A lot of dispensationalists believe that it is God's will for Israel to rebuild the temple. But I find that to be a very problematic belief. It doesn't make sense to believe that God would want Israel to rebuild the temple unless he also wants them to restore the old sacrificial system. And he most assuredly does not. Let's look at Hebrews 10, verses 1 through 18. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But if these sacrifices... But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, uh, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and in sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as is written me, written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law, then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ, once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from the time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a singer offering, he has perfected for all time, perfected for all time, those who are being sanctified. It said earlier in this chapter that if those sacrifices that the priests offer were able to perfect those who draw near, they would cease. But Christ has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their heart and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of sins, there is no longer any offering for sin. The temple sacrifices were a foreshadowing of Christ's sacrifice. And since Christ's sacrifice has happened, there no longer needs to be a foreshadowing. Not only that, but we looked earlier at how Jesus prophesied the destruction of the temple. The temple is a part of the old sacrificial system. 
but they were both foreshadowings. And now that we are in the new covenant, God has done away with both of them. That prophecy that Jesus gave was fulfilled in 70 AD when Rome sacked Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. And God is never going to bring the sacrificial system back, ever. And if we as Christians start to fight to help Jews bring back the sacrificial system, we will be fighting against God in doing so. Not only that, but we'd be encouraging Jews to place themselves under a curse. Let's look at Galatians 5, verses 2 through 4. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. If we encourage Jews to rebuild the sacrificial system so that they can you know, be justified by it, we're encouraging them to reject Christ. But again, uh, not all dispensationalists believe that God wants to reinstitute the sacrificial system, but the ones that don't still typically think that God wants Israel to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. But that doesn't really work out logically to have the temple without the sacrificial system. Because if Jews are still going to be Jews and be separate from the church and not have received Christ, and they rebuild the temple, they're going to reestablish the sacrificial system. And they're going to trust in it for their righteousness. And that is not God's will. God has done away with the sacrificial system. It won't come back. Not within God's will at least. If it ever was brought back, it'd be in rebellion to God. And in rejection of his son. So in conclusion, uh, God has one people group. The church which is made up of Jews and Gentiles who believe in Christ. We have all been grafted into one tree. And um, a second point of conclusion, I do want to keep pointing this out. We are all called to be united and to love and respect each other, even if we disagree on these theological matters. This is nothing that I would want anyone to have disunity or division over. We can all worship and fellowship together, even if we never come to agreement on this. So that brings us to our communion meditation. Today's communion meditation is titled, Jesus is our healer. Let's look at Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord laid on him, on Christ, the iniquity of us all. So earlier today, I was privileged to, give, uh, to announce that Anne was miraculously healed of colon cancer. But I want to take this communion meditation to point out the mercy of Christ in that healing. Anne did not deserve to be healed, just like none of us deserves to be healed. None of us deserves any good thing for that matter, because we've all sinned willingly against God Most High. But God loves Anne. 
just as he loves each of us, even as he loved Christ his son. And because of that love, Jesus went to the cross for her and for us. Christ bore every transgression, and by his wounds we are healed. Christ is rich in mercy, and because of his mercy, we can be healed even though we don't deserve it. God can be just and still heal us because of Christ. And because of Christ's great love, we have seen a mighty healing. So let's praise Christ as we come to the table in remembrance of his sacrifice for us.